0: Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series on school reopening in the law. Today we're discussing issues related to school security and reopening. I'm very happy that we have with us today Jeff Gale, who is the Director of the Office of School Preparedness and Emergency Planning with the New Jersey Department of Education. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: You're welcome. Good to be here. So
0: so as a foundation for our conversation today, it's important to understand some basic requirements that all school districts need to address when it comes to school security. Every school district must have in place a comprehensive school security plan that lays out how that district will address various foreseeable school security issues that could arise. That security plan is intended to ensure the protection of the health, safety, uh, and security of the full school population, including students, parents, staff, other guests in the school. It's designed to prevent, intervene, and respond to, and recover from emergency and crisis situations. It also has some broader intent, including establishing and maintaining a climate of civility so that we are reducing the potential for issues to escalate and turn into crisis situations, and it includes supportive services for staff, students, and their families related to school security issues that may arise. Every school district has a number of specific requirements, of course, that also have to be addressed on a regular basis. So every principal of a school has to ensure that there is at least one fire drill and one school security drill each month within the school year, including any summer months during which school is open for instructional programs. And of course, as we're recording today's podcast, school districts across the state are preparing for large-scale summer programming to an extent that we have never seen before. So this requirement becomes very relevant as we consider that summer programming. Schools are also required to hold a number of additional drills, including a minimum of two active shooter drills, two evacuation non-fire drills, two bomb threat drills, and two lockdown drills annually. Schools also have some requirements that they have to be ready for at the very start of the school year. So schools are required to conduct a school security drill within the first 15 days of the beginning of the school year. Schools are also required to have their first evacuation drill within 10 days of the beginning of classes. So very early on in the school year, we need to be ready to start having these required drills. Every school district now has to have in place a school safety specialist. That person is responsible for the supervision and oversight for all school safety and security personnel, policies, and procedures in the district. That person is responsible for ensuring that those policies are in compliance with state law and regulations and is responsible for providing the necessary training and resources to school district staff in matters related to school safety and security. So as I say that, that's an incredibly broad set of responsibilities. Of course, no one person can do all of that work. It's essential that there is a very strong team in place to make sure that all of those responsibilities are being effectively addressed. Our legislature has also been very active. We uh, have had a number of new requirements that have been put in place in recent years related to school security, and it's essential that school districts stay up to date with those latest requirements. So as one example, there is a requirement for districts to work in collaboration with non-school youth programs that are using school facilities and work to appropriately share information regarding school security practices and procedures Now, I want to stress, and we're going to talk about this with Jeff Gale, that we're talking about sharing non-confidential information on evacuation procedures, emergency response protocols, emergency contact information. So it's critical that we understand what information can be shared and what information cannot be shared as part of that process. There is also recent legislation requiring school districts to ensure that substitutes are provided with information and training on school security protocols. There had, in the past, been huge gaps for some school districts, because most of the staff were trained on understanding emergency response protocols, but inevitably, we would have substitutes in a building, and a drill would be carried out, or worse yet, a real emergency situation would arise, and we had some situations where substitutes simply didn't know what to do, and that was a gap that the legislature did fill with a requirement to make sure that substitutes are also provided with training on school security protocols. As we think about all the requirements that school districts have put into place, of course, we also have to keep in the back of our mind the potential for incredibly serious situations like school shootings. Unfortunately, we have seen attacks on schools across the nation and an increasing number of those in recent years. So it's important to learn lessons from these experiences. There was uh, one very important assessment that was done by the Department of Homeland Security uh, this year in 2021, examining 67 averted attacks, planned attacks that were averted targeting schools between 2006 and 2018. And the study provided some really useful information about some of the trends that we can see in those planned attacks. For example, the study showed that in the majority of these situations, the attacker had communicated their intent with someone else. They had told another person, either another student or sometimes an adult, either a parent or a staff member or some other adult, had told somebody about their plan to carry out the attack. The majority had experienced very significant life stressors within five years, those adverse childhood experiences that can have a tremendous impact on students. The majority had a history of mental health symptoms, and the majority expressed interest in various violent themes that could come out in a number of different ways. We saw some other trends in looking at this study. For example, about half of the attackers in this study had been bullied. About half had experienced suicidal ideation and had been the target of some concern by others who knew them well. And about one third had actually had some mental health treatment, had had substance use issues or treatment, and had some prior contact with law enforcement. So we know there is no crystal ball when it comes to these issues. There is no absolute predictor in every one of these cases, but we do see some important trends that we should learn from when we're looking at these issues and hopefully some lessons that we can take as we try to identify and avert those sorts of horrific situations. So Jeff, I thought in bringing you into this conversation, that might be a good place for us to start So I'm wondering if you can comment on some of the key considerations that schools should take when it comes to identifying and potentially averting planned school attacks.
1: Sure, and this is probably one of the most important pieces of of the puzzle when it comes to the safety and security of students we've come to learn over the last several years. One of the things that we discuss in the trainings that we conduct and in the symposiums and so forth that we hold is this whole concept of identifying the potential for someone on a path to violence prior to them actually engaging in violent acts within our schools. And that really begins in many ways with the culture and climate within the school building itself. And it also is very dependent on having the best understanding that you can of the people that populate your building. So when we are looking at some of the things that you just discussed in the previous slide, we're looking at someone's baseline and we're looking at deviations from their baseline behaviors and we're trying to make a determination of a reason for those deviations and what we can do to help intervene at an early stage and get that student or that individual the help that they need to keep them on track. So we talk to school administrators, school staff, the teachers about developing connections with their students, about understanding their students, and about being sensitive to changes in their behavior that might give us cause to be concerned about their future, where they're headed, whether or not they might be moving into some of those categories that you just put together. And we're looking for constellations of behavior. We're looking for uh, some of those elements to kind of start stacking up on one another. For example, we one of the things that we talk about in our trainings is that whole concept that everybody describes a potential attacker as a loner. Well, is that really a fact or is it not? Is that person an incompetent joiner that's trying to be part of something and is being rebuffed and rejected? And are they truly a loner? Or maybe are they just someone who was quiet all along from day one? They've been very reserved. They've been a wallflower, so to speak. And so maybe that doesn't represent a change in their behavior. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it has no significance, but that outgoing person that suddenly withdraws is a significant baseline change that we might want to have some context for. And it's going to be a challenge right now, coming back to school, having instructed students online for as long as we have. We really don't know what changes they've undergone in the last year. And you point out the amplified and increased attacks, we're seeing that everywhere across society right now. And so as we come back to school, I think we really need to be paying attention to how our students conduct themselves and maybe have a little bit more training and understanding in what those behaviors we should be watching for look like. We have been giving the training in our School Safety Specialist Academy in small doses, but we will be rolling out training for school staff on the concept of behavioral threat assessments, trying to recognize some of these things, how to put teams together in your school buildings, who should populate those teams. You don't want it to just be a couple administrators because they might not see every angle on that same student.
0: Of course, as we're thinking about schools reopening in a large-scale way in September, we know that our world has changed pretty dramatically since March of 2020. Can you comment a little bit on uh, some of the new or revised school security requirements that have been put in place since the pandemic led to the closure of schools in March of 2020?
1: One of the things that has taken place and has been a struggle over the course of this pandemic was actually recently at the outset of the pandemic became a requirement, which was for schools to conduct their own security assessments of their their facilities. Schools now need to conduct their own assessment of the security of their campuses, and it was very difficult during the pandemic with all the other things that we and schools out there in the field were juggling to try to get enough training out to the districts on this topic. However, my office, along with the Office of Homeland Security here in New Jersey, the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security, is currently in the process of putting out additional trainings. We have identified a tool. What this legislation mandates is that our two offices combined identify a tool, provide training and technical support. To assist schools in conducting these assessments. So, we identified a tool that's called Site Assess. It was put out by the US Department of Education, and it is a tool that's used on a phone app, or a laptop, or a tablet. And you can walk around your building and you answer questions. And when the questions are all done, it populates a Word document and an Excel spreadsheet. And right now we're still trying to determine where they get sent and in what version, but my anticipation is that probably both versions will be sent to my office to be shared with Homeland Security to meet the final mandate of providing those reports to our offices. What that tool will do is to give schools an idea of some of the things that they should be looking at, I think as much as anything. It's a very exhaustive tool. It takes a little while to get through. We're in the process of trying to revise the questions and the answers so that it's not too burdensome. But we have determined that that tool will help administrators to walk through their buildings, walk through their campuses, check off questions. It allows you to then set up a schedule and assign individuals to conduct work that needs to be conducted in order to get things to where they need to be. So that site assess tool, we will be putting out some f- additional training, but the elements within that legislation require that each individual school conduct those things annually for themselves so that they're not relying on outside agencies and they don't get a report that they don't understand. The report that they typically were getting is not giving reference to things that they never saw themselves and didn't recognize as a problem. So that's probably one of the big ones. It was supposed to have been conducted during this school year for the first time. I'm not sure how many schools managed to get through all of that. We had trouble getting the trainings lined up and so forth, Uh, but my office is here to continue to assist with that and we will be putting out more trainings to our school safety specialists uh, first and foremost and to school administrators that are required to conduct these. So that would be one of the big ones that I think we need to be concerned about right now. The other one you mentioned is the training on users of your buildings for after school activities. We have through my office always proposed that if you are going to be using your buildings in that context, if you're going to allow a travel basketball team to come in and use your gym, somebody from your building really should be there at their expense, at the expense of the organization that's contracting your building with a specific agreement in mind as to what you are going to be using and what you are prohibited from using. And that that individual that has expertise in keeping your school secure during the day is there to guide you after hours, to make sure that your school is not improperly used, to make sure that there isn't a um, any kind of a deterioration of your school security posture for the next day. In other words, we don't want to risk our school day safety so that somebody can play basketball at night, Right. And so this legislation now mandates that you take that posture and turn it over to the head of the organization. So the the boys club uh, travel basketball team needs to have in the, in the manager or the coach or whoever is designated, that individual needs to get training so that they can keep those kids safe in your building. The problem with that, and you pointed it out very aptly is that we don't want to reveal any confidential information. Once again, we don't want to subject our typical school hours to the potential for a security breach or violence because we taught somebody outside of the school community what we do in a school emergency. So it's a very fine line and I anticipate we'll be putting some training out on on how to kind of navigate that conversation. What we should be talking about is the concept of evacuation routes and fire alarms and those types of general topics to keep people safe without explaining exactly what we do in a classroom for a lockdown when there's an intruder in our building and so forth, if that makes sense. So those are probably the two big ones that schools have not really fully come to grips with during this pandemic because they kicked off in this last year and, and schools were putting their attention on so many other things. So those are the two big ones that I think that we need to pay attention to right now
0: we also have lots of other requirements that have been in place for quite some time, but let's face it, um, in some ways we have gotten out of practice over this last year and a half, as we have had uh, so many students and staff who have not been in school. So can you talk a little bit about some areas where we might need to focus refresher training to remind students, parents, um, and staff about existing school security requirements?
1: This is kind of exacerbated this topic by the pandemic. So we know, we anticipated going into the closure period that we were gonna be looking at the potential for individuals to start retiring at a faster rate. People that maybe were thinking they'd do another couple of years as a teacher in the district, decided I'm not gonna expose myself to a pandemic, return of a pandemic in the fall. And so that kind of compounds this because not only have our, our normal school staff and administrators been away from their buildings for the most part for the last year and haven't been engaged in this type of conversation about security in the school itself, but we also have a, a whole host of new people that have never been exposed to how we handle school security to begin with, right? So I think that on top of all of that, during the past year with the, with the failure to suspend the drill law, and the work that my office has had to do to try to revise drilling and retain the efficacy of the intent of drilling while also not violating health principles and trying to keep people from from getting sick, (laughs) we've changed what we've done over the last year, right? So to make it, uh, to put it in simple terms, we haven't done a fire drill evacuation for the most part. We have remained in the building. So. I think on the one hand, we did a really good job of, of trying to teach our students what they should be doing during a fire drill that we probably lost years and years and years ago by just going through a routine without really thinking about why we were doing some of the things we were doing and forgetting some of the things we should have been doing. But now we need to take that information and we need to couple that with getting back to doing an actual normal fire drill at some point. The same holds true for all of our school security drills. So. Right now, I think we need to really focus on reminding our staff of what our policies and practices are for responding to emergencies in our buildings. We need to remind and convey to our parent communities and reinforce our access control policies, our visitor policies, the things that we have typically done to keep our buildings locked up to keep our people separate from potential intruders and so forth. I, there was guidance that came out about ventilation. In simple terms, it was telling you to prop open doors. We know that that's not a great idea. You, you can prop open a door if you don't violate the security of your building, but um, you know, I know people from my office walked right into a gymnasium because they had the doors propped open when they were out doing um, distribution of bleeding control kits a couple months ago. So we need to remind everyone of the typical policies and protocols that we have enacted and enforced and reinforced over past years and get back to a normal sense of how to keep those schools secure. So some of that is retraining and reminding for some of the some of those that are typically in our buildings and have been for years, and some of it is initiating training for those that have never had that training. I know you mentioned substitutes and the importance of training substitutes, and we know, that, for example, at Sandy Hook Elementary, there were some substitutes that did not have keys to lock the doors to their classrooms. That's probably you know, one of the hardest lessons in making sure that our substitutes are equipped. But I think you could probably confirm this for me, but I have a feeling that we're gonna have an awful lot more substitutes on our buildings this year than we ever have before. But that's, that's where we need to focus some of our efforts, is reminding and retraining and, and refocusing on our basic school security that existed before we had to deal with the health issues.
0: And of course, um, our schools across the state did an incredible job under unprecedented circumstances over this past year and a half in responding to the pandemic, but we were scrambling in many ways. So can you comment a little bit on some of the lessons that we should take from our experience during the pandemic and how we can use those to enhance our school security moving forward?
1: To touch on your opening statement, the schools did do a great job, I think, in in having to constantly regain their footing and and stride off in different directions that they've never had to deal with before. At the very, very beginning of this, we had a a dearth of PPE out in the first response communities. We did not have enough individuals out there with the equipment that they needed in the hospitals, uh, in the ambulance corps and first aid squads and so forth. And our office put together almost overnight a process to retrieve the PPE that was out there in all of our schools across the state that was not being used because no one was in the building, right? And the schools did a really good job of stepping up and helping us to get that PPE that was sitting boxed up in their buildings from the Zika virus and, and you know, who knows what else, we've, we've kind of prepared ourselves for Ebola a few years ago and got that product out into the hands of the people on the front lines. And that really showed, I think, the connection that we've been able to forge with all of the work that our office has done with the school safety specialists, with administrators across the state, with organizations like yours. And so on the front side, the schools were very responsive to our needs. At the same time as they started to repopulate their buildings, guess what they didn't have anymore? So we had to counter that by now the stores at the, the State Emergency Operations Center up with the New Jersey State Police started to get in the supplies that were needed. So we reversed the process and got those supplies back to the schools so that they had them on hand. Some schools never had any to begin with and therefore weren't getting any back on the backside of this. They weren't prepared, they did not have the supplies that they needed in the first place. So they started seeking grant money. And we started working to try to help them to achieve some funding to be able to equip their staff so one of the lessons that we learned from that is that in some ways we were prepared in some ways we weren't we didn't see a health crisis like this coming so what do we take away from just that aspect of how we do business well we now know how that process looks we now know the numbers that we would need right we probably ordered PPE for some of our buildings, you know, a couple of years ago, not really realizing how much we could conceivably need if something got to the stages that we got to with COVID. So now we've got an equation. Our schools should have a pretty good idea of exactly what it is they need to get back if they were to close down or if they were to try to to instruct. We always, our offices always preach that you have to be prepared for these types of things. We've learned about the need for connectivity with the internet and and how we can achieve that. We've learned what happens when our student population needs to be provided with meals when the school building is not open. We've learned all these lessons. This happened to us with Hurricane Sandy, and if if people were involved in this process post Hurricane Sandy, we learned a lot of lessons and we went out and we started training and planning and preparing for what that should look like next time. We need to take that same approach with, with this pandemic now with the institutional knowledge that we have on hand with the individuals that live through this is the time to take those lessons and put them into a plan for next time before we lose that knowledge before we forget before this becomes something that ends up in our rearview mirror and five or eight or ten years from now god forbid we end up in this same position we didn't take those lessons and convert them into something useful for next time so Those are the things that I think we should focus on as lessons learned and build them into our plans so that we're prepared if this happens to us again.
0: And I know over this past uh, year and a half or so, your office has provided incredible support across the state of New Jersey to so many school districts, but I'm still finding that there are many school officials who are not aware of the supports that are available through your office can you talk a little bit about how your office can work with school districts to help them to improve school security?
1: Sure. And it's kind of confusing how there are still so many out there that that don't recognize the resources that are available to them at absolutely no cost from our office and how, how useful and how cutting edge those resources are. I think that whenever I speak to groups in, in New Jersey, I explain to them that you may think in your individual building or in your state that we're not doing enough or you're not collectively doing enough, that your building is not doing enough, but I'm engaged and my office is engaged in an awful lot of national conversations. What we offer is not something that we just make up. What we offer is not something that, you know, there are lots of other versions of in all cases. Some of what we're doing is very unique and, and in those national conversations, We get a lot of jealousy sent to us. How are you doing all this? And it's because of all these partnerships. It's not really just because of us. It's because of engagements like we're in right now, where we get to share information back and forth and we get to learn at the, the front line. The other unique thing about our office in answering this question is that most states do not, I'm unaware of any state, in fact, that does have a team like my team that is all over their state, engaged day to day in a personal sense, observing drills, Providing training, going to, we've got Atlantic City, right? That means we've got conventions constantly by all of the organizations that are involved in providing our kids education from buildings and grounds to athletic directors to principals and supervisors. The list goes on and on and on. And as a result of all those exchanges and the, the work that we do with Boots on the Ground, that doesn't exist in very many places. It's very, very unique in my experience. So what I would tell schools to take away from uh, how they can work with my office is this. All they have to do is ask, and something will be provided for them. When the directors of athletics asked if I could give them a presentation on event security, we made up an entire program based on that one request that is now part of the curriculum for our school safety specialist academy. If it doesn't exist, we will find a legitimate way to do that. I've got experience doing event security in my time in the state police. We have a ton of training in my office. We put all that stuff together and came up with a very good program that doesn't exist in many places. When it's all said and done, we're out there to observe your drills, to give you guidance, whether it be a phone call, whether it be a personal visit, whether it be a walkthrough of your facility, and it all comes at no cost whatsoever. So please, by all means, reach out to us. It's what we do, it's what we like to do, and uh, we're available around the clock. And
0: I do know you work around the clock, so I want to thank you for the incredible partnership that you have provided through your office to our association, the New Jersey Principals and Supervisors Association. It's been a wonderful partnership, and I know that school leaders across the state are incredibly appreciative of the great work you've done, and how much you have listened as well to those in the field and responded to the needs and and concerns. It has helped all of us to get through this together.
1: You're welcome, and and that partnership is two ways, and we've said this over and over and over again. You know, it's it's easy to throw the word expert around. We, We really don't feel like we're in that position. To me, the experts are the people we learn from, and we have not stopped listening to custodians and school nurses and teachers and parents, that, that's where all of this comes together. And I think that's lost in the equation too frequently. So we appreciate you partnering with us as well. So thank you.
0: If you would like additional information, we encourage you to go to our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj. We do encourage you to also look at the incredible information and resources available from the New Jersey Department of Education Office of School Preparedness and Emergency Planning So when you go to our website, we have a link to that NJDOE website as well, and we encourage you to look at those great resources. We have also, throughout our podcast, been partnering with New Jersey PTA, so we encourage you to go to the New Jersey PTA website at www.njpta.org. With that, I want to thank all of our listeners as well for the incredible work that you have been doing every day. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you on a future episode of a Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org.